Does creativity help physicians care for their patients? Can making space for stories improve healthcare? How does imagination come into play in the practice of medicine? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Jay Baruch. He is a professor of emergency medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University. There, he directs the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Scholarly Concentration. He's a practicing emergency room doctor like myself. He's a writer and educator. He has a new nonfiction book coming. It's called Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through the Constraints and Creativity in the ER, published by MIT Press. Jay is also the author of two award-winning short fiction collections, What's Left Out, and 14 Stories, Doctors, Patients, and Other Strangers. Jay's academic work emerged as a response to the realization that medical training didn't prepare him for the complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity that pervades patient care. His teaching involves interdisciplinary collaborations and pushing the boundaries with people who hold different expertise and ways of looking at the world. His collaborators have included museum educators, designers, and artists. Jay's current work focuses on arts and health and designing authentic spaces for fostering difficult conversations. As a listener of Design Lab, there are three ways that you can support the show. Go to the podcast show notes to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Give us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That means giving us five stars. We almost have 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts. Help us get to 100 and tell a friend about the show. Now, here's my conversation with my friend, Jay Baruch. Jay Baruch, welcome to Design Lab. I am so excited that you're on. I've been waiting months for this conversation. Well, thank you so much, man. I am absolutely thrilled and tickled to be here. We were talking before we started recording and we can talk forever. So I was like, Jay, we need to just stop and start recording this podcast. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not going to have a I conversation know. for the listening audience. I want to just jump into your new book that's coming out on August 29th. It's called The Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through the Constraints and Creativity in the Emergency Room. I've been devouring your book and I pulled out some quotes and I wanted to start off with one. You say caring for patients demands creativity as a clinical skill. That really resonated with me, but most people would not think that doctors need to be creative. How did you come to that realization? Why, what in your life and your career made you to say that? So I think I look at the question from the other direction, which is like, I don't understand like how it's, how it's like, I know you get it, Bob, but I don't understand how most of medicine doesn't look at it as creative because essentially like we're taking care, like this is humans trying to understand humans. Mm. And, and so, which is it's just never easy. Like we're we're complicated, we're complicated characters. Like we're not one thing. And so the reason why I sort of glommed onto this idea about creativity, and this was years and years ago, and it really was one, <laughs> it was really one that emerged out of desperation. Hmm. Because I, you know, I, I was an English major in college. I went to college initially to be 
a writer, to be an English professor, that's where my brain it works, sort of in the liberal arts and the humanities. And, and actually, I found myself I'm drawn to medicine because of the storytelling element, because I happened mm. to take a particular course that involved going to a local hospital where I was talking to patients. And I felt like this is Wait, come on, you, you weren't, weren't pre-med? Like initially I was going in? took the bare amount of pre-med courses to get into medical school. Wow. But I was an English major. Yeah, I graduated as an English major. I was one of those people that literally one of the people who first one of the interviewers from medical school said, your MCAT scores are like average for what we accept and your grades are average for what we accept because and you're an English major as if boom. <laughs> Why, why, <laughs> why should we accept you with such scorn and disdain in his voice? And I said something to the effect of, I thought that learning and studying some of the greatest complex characters in literature seems to be a better training and better experience than dissecting a frog. Mm. And learning to be a doctor and caring for human beings and caring for patients. I didn't know. I mean, I just felt that in my bones. There are a lot of things that I just don't get that I get. And so what happened when was that, like, as you know, like we go to medical school, which we get, we go into our emergency medicine training and I was, you know, I was educated well, you know, I was trained well by some very, very smart people. And yet I was unprepared when I was a physician, I was unprepared for the thing that troubled me most, hmm. which was working with uncertainty, you know, because my patients didn't read the book, right? They came in with problems. They just didn't read the book. They didn't read the same journal articles that I did. The reductionist focus in medicine, which was on like finding the right answer was really challenging because what I was facing is like, what are the questions I should be asking? I don't even know what the right questions are. And patient, even if I did find a patient who's, let's say, their medical problems aligned up like a stem of a question that, that the answer was D. It wasn't a puzzle to be solved. There, mm. the, the table on which it, it sat was so unsteady with social issues and mental health issues and yeah. economic issues. And it was so complicated that I found myself drawing on my creative writing skills and taking those skills to the bedside in the care of my patients. So it really was one of desperation and something that was gradual. So you think your creativity helps you to be a better physician? Like caring, caring It's essential. It's absolutely essential. Even nowadays, when we talk about you know, shared decision-making like with patients, you know, essentially like, shared decision-making is shared uncertainty. What is that for our listeners who don't know what shared decision So the idea about shared decision-making, which is sort of an interesting term because we put verbiage to a conversation that I thought we were always having with patients <laughs> and should be having, which is about like what we think is going on, what is what we think needs to be done, what are some of the risks and benefits, what do you value as the patient, what do you value as a family? And I thought this was medicine. But apparently it got put to a term called shared decision-making, like, like we're putting a language to everything. And every patient and every family member in every situation is different. No two heart attack conversations are the same. No two end-of-life conversations are the same. And it's because you're dealing with different stories. Like the, whatever the situation is, it's in the context of a larger story. Is, you know, with, so you have to be adaptable. You have to be open-minded. You have to go into it, not with a preset agenda of like, this is how it's supposed to go. But like, God, how do I engage with this person? How do I understand what they're going through? 
And I think at the very basic level, what we have to try to get at is, am I hearing the story that they're telling? Mm. Which is not always the case, because sometimes we're so focused on trying to give them an answer that the story that we're hearing is one that we could solve. You have a lot of examples of this practically from your career in your book. Can you give me an example of when you heard the story that helped you to get a diagnosis or that helped you to deliver better care to the patient at the bedside? You know, one of the early stories in the book has to do with a situation that was early in my medical career as an attending. I finished my residency, I finished medical school, and I'm embarrassed to say this. I was working at my, my first job at a residency in a city hospital in New York, and I had was caring for this lovely woman. She was like it's a Saturday night, crazy, you know, craziness. And, and this woman is elegantly dressed, and she's polite, and she's wonderful. And she has this range of sort of complaints, very vague. And as I said in the in the story, there was there was nothing vague about her, and there was something that was not quite getting. I kept them going back, and then suddenly, you know, I just focused on chest pain and shortness of breath. Those were like the dangerous things that she was sort of mentioning. And so I went down this diagnostic pathway that involved like, does she have a heart attack? Does she have potentially a blood clot in her lung? And I kept on going back, and she's basically on a stretcher with other people who. <laughs> weren't as eloquently dressed and weren't as polite. Yeah. It didn't smell as good as she did on a Saturday night. And there's nothing and worse then, than a patient who does not have one complaint. And I'm not saying this in a way that I, I'm putting the blame on us, but we're impatient. We like the chief complaint, chest pain, shortness, breath, abdominal pain. We like to form a differential diagnosis and get to what's the damn reason you're here. But the patient who has multiple complaints confuses us. And the fact that, you know, it's not just as multiple complaints, but it's not in any particular order. Yeah. You have a sense that there's something more going on, but maybe, but then you take this complex thing and you try to make it simple. You're like, okay, what do I get? And so it's this thing stems through the night and she is not complaining. And then the morning comes and, and I explain the fact that like everything's negative. I apologize that I kept there there for the entire night. I'm apologetic that I didn't find a, an explanation for her symptoms. And I ended with, hey, can, can we call anybody? Because she had a wedding ring on. And I asked if we can you know, call her husband, come pick her up or something like that. And she was like, and she didn't want that. And eventually she confessed the real reason why she came to the emergency department, which was the fact that she was, you know, she has been a victim of you know, interpersonal violence, mm -hmm. domestic violence. And that evening she was out and she had, she was embarrassed to admit it. And this was, you know, 25, 28 years ago. And now I write in the essay is that like, I was caring and I was diligent and I was conscientious and I was entirely devoid of any imagination. You know, I was so focused. <laughs> I was so focused on what might be going on. Mm. I didn't ask the question, why are you here? Why are you here now? The question about why. And I was so focused and so insecure in my abilities about trying to get things right that I didn't risk, you know, take that risk 
of being more open-minded and open-ended and saying, why are you here? And being more, and leading, not with trying to be smart, but with trying to be curious. Another quote that you say is, imagination is necessary to understand another human. So when, when you told that story, it reminded me of that, that yeah. we need to use on rely upon our imagination. And I think also on that, you know, when patients come in, what so many of our patients have is a sense of a loss of control, mm. right? And it might be their body. And we focus so much on the body, like the body's gone awry, but there's also a sense of, of what they think things should be or could be mm-hmm. and what might have been and dealing with what their pasts imagine their past sense of or who they thought they would be and how that squares with the present situation and circumstances that perhaps they could not have anticipated. In the book, I talk about the role of stories and actually knowing the anatomy of stories, you know, in all mm-hmm. stories, you know, a medical school, we spent a semester teaching the anatomy of the human body. And yet every patient we talk to, especially in the emergency department and on the front lines in any setting, is stories like that's what we engage with primarily with stories yeah and stories have only three pieces of the anatomy you know and it's and typically it's a captivating interesting character and i mean that in the best most humane sense Mm -hmm. who wants something who has desires something and obstacles get in the way Mm -hmm. you know so it's character it's desire it's obstacles and oftentimes what drives stories, what makes us glued to our screens or turning pages of a book is the sense of struggle, right? And the sense of there's a gap. There's a gap between what a character thought was going to happen and what actually happened. Mm. And we're engaged because we're like, wow, what's this person going to do? And I see the patients who come to us and see us in the emergency department, oftentimes they live in that expectation gap. And so even for us, I go, oh, that's no big thing because we're thinking about it from a medical perspective. But sometimes I can't get my prescription filled or I am out on or I'm momentarily without a home or I got into a fight because I have, you know, this happened in my life and that happened in my life and this happened in my life. And you lose that sense of control. These little stories we don't tell, you know, and it's the, it's the essence of what, of what oftentimes patients come to the emergency department with. And we need to be like alert to that and sensitive to that. Cause oftentimes we end up producing what we think is good medicine, mm-hmm. but patients leave disappointed because it's not what they needed from us. I have one comment and one question. The comment is that the entire medical system with the EHR is designed for us not to capture these stories because we are literally the notes that we write are templated. They look like a Mad Libs book and the story is already told for us and we just need to fill in the blanks. But there are so many time constraints in medicine. So that's my comment. And my question is, we don't have time to capture these stories and to hear these stories. Yeah. I, (laughs) I had a years and years and years ago, I gave a talk at a medical school and there was a very prominent, 
like emeritus level physician, just someone who was just totally wonderful, came out to dinner with us. And he's listening, he's looking at me and he's listening. He gets it like this. He's old school. He sort of gets this. But there's also a sense of cynicism, like just looking at me is give me the evil eye. And then finally he goes, I got to ask you a question. And I'm like, shoot. And he goes, you're an ER doc talking about the importance of story. And I go, yeah. And I'm bracing myself, like <laughs> chewing whatever I can swallow and get it in. And he's like, but you have no time for story. Just what you said, Mom, right? We have no time. We have all these, not only do we have time, but we have, we're interrupted constantly. You know, people are always asking us questions. We have something else. We're always managing 15, 20 patients simultaneously. And I told him then what I'll tell you now, which is the fact that we don't have time doesn't excuse the fact that patients are going to continue to come to us with their stories, mm. right? That's not going to stop. And if anything, over the years, we've found that these stories have become increasingly complex. Like, I don't know about you, Bob, but in my practice, the complicated multifactorial patients that used to come in, that used to come maybe a handful of times during an ER ship, it is almost every patient now. Like yeah. every patient, because our healthcare system has, like we see the, all the consequences of a healthcare system in crisis, of communities in crisis, of populations in crisis. No one wants to take responsibility or they're overwhelmed or they don't have enough money or they don't have the funds and they come to us. So I look at it as this way. We need to have as many tools in our toolbox for understanding the experiences of others, you know, and I feel like the president model, which thinks about, you know, thinks about medical issues primarily for first and foremost, it, like, what is it? It's a chief complaint. When oftentimes what patients come in is like, we have to frame it as like, this, what is their chief need? Mm. And not necessarily the complaint, because the complaint actually looks like, what's your complaint? But what is your need? Mm. And it's sometimes, as you know, what they say isn't important. It's what they're not saying, which is what's important, right? What they're holding back from, you know, the patient who doesn't have a home, who might come in with chest pain, but what is really just sort of, you know, lonely or homeless. And, you know, I, I have an essay in the book about, like, when loneliness is an emergency and how easy it is for us to respond to them because we can do that as human beings, right? You don't have to be a doctor to respond to a lonely person. You don't have to be in medical school. And yet sometimes going to medical school takes us in this pattern of thinking that prevents us from doing the very thing that normal humans, <laughs> normal humans should do. Like five-year-olds should you know, do very well as far as comforting others. Uh, and some of that is just, there's nothing to do with being a physician, but actually being in the healthcare system, which puts other pressures and but it's so complicated. And I find, and I wrote about this in the book, that that the model, like our mental model of how we approach patients is critically important. And one of the first essays I have in the book, Tornado of Life, was the name, you know, the, the title essay, was a woman who had you know, some mental health issues, substance use issues, and life was just mm. knocking her down step by step by step step. And she was ostensibly sort of a quote unquote difficult patient. And and often, and I, I've learned over the years that, you know, those patients that we sort of get labeled as difficult, they're oftentimes yeah. just difficult stories. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have personalities, 
<laughs> well, lots of times the stories or the circumstances are difficult. And we have to try to understand that. And she kept on calling for a doctor, calling for, and then eventually, you know, I went to go see her. Then she doesn't want to talk. Mm. Right. I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, trying to find my way in a little bit, sitting there quietly. And then she said something to me, which was really interesting. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in the tornado of life, mm. which I think is just incredibly, like our patients do this to us. They share such extraordinary, profound moments, like in language, like this, oh, it's like, this is what we do. Like, it's just to sit there and to, and I sat there and I we were probing that a little bit more. And she just recounted a list of like, and this happened and this happened and this and this and then, and then, and then. And at that moment, you know, I realized she was telling me what was called the chaos narrative. And I write about this in the essay about, so there's a, you know, a sociologist, Arthur Frank, who wrote this extraordinary book. And in it, he talks about sort of three illness narratives that aren't distinct categories. They blend into each other. But I think it's important in how we understand our patients. And, and he, he, he called them, you know, restitution narratives, quest narratives, and chaos narratives. Mm-hmm. And I think the medical industrial complex, we live in the restitution narrative, right? Which is our basic, you know, at the most core basic level, it's like the cold commercial, the commercial you see on TV. You know, you were well, and then you got sick, and then you took this purple, green, yellow, whatever pill uh-huh. with 15,000 consonants in it and no vowels with a name you can't <laughs> even pronounce. And then the next, then the next scene, like they're in some park and some super saturated sunlight, kicking the, you know, kicking the ball around with their dog. Right? You were well. You were sick. You took something. You had a treatment, and now you return back to who you were. And he described what's called the quest narrative, which borrows from the work of Joseph Campbell, which is sort of illness as a journey. And he writes about his own experience as a cancer survivor. And essentially, like, you're well, and you become ill, and you get pushed off. You're into another space, the land of the ill, where you basically endure a bunch of experiences and ordeals, and you get tested. And if you're lucky, you have a chance to come back to the land of the well. But you're not the same person you were than the person who left. Something happened, you've changed, the experience changed you. And sometimes that experience is so profound that it's even tough to translate to the people who you love, who are closest to you, you know? Mm. And the last narrative is chaos narratives. Those people who are telling stories that are marked by a total loss of control, you know? And typically it's like, they might go, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and then, and then, and then. Or it's just, it's marked by this feeling of sort of devastation and, and people having trouble putting language to experiences. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you know, like they can be very frustrating for us, right? And some of the worst things that we can do is to actually take someone who's telling us a chaos narrative and try to squeeze them into saying, into a, restitution narrative. Oh, just do this and be better. If I just, yeah. if I just do this, or if you just do X, oh, you'll be fine. When they know that tomorrow is not going to be fine. I feel like half the patients I see have this chaos narrative. 
they do. And it's and what's extraordinary is that years ago, when I first gave a talk on this to our residents, several residents that week came up to me and they actually found comfort and relief mm. from actually having a sense that, okay, they're telling us this. And more importantly, what their sense of responsibility was. Mm. And that it's okay to not try to force it into something that it is not. And and to just listen to them and to honor their chaos narrative. And people are oftentimes so grateful because what happens is we don't listen to them because we're so busy trying to be smart and come up with an answer yeah. for challenges and life issues, which oftentimes are difficult to solve in an easy pill. And it feels inauthentic. It feels false to them. And more importantly, we're not honoring them by allowing them to tell their story. Maybe every medical school should have both gross anatomy and anatomy of a story in the first love year it. of medical Let's school. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You and me, buddy. <laughs> Your book has so many great quotes. When I was reading, I was just like, I have to pause almost every page and write it down. You know, one of them, you say, emergency rooms and hospitals are designed to be healing places, but people are the sources of intimacy and warmth. How did you come to that conclusion? Is it working as a physician? Is it your experience as a patient? I had learned that you have some serious chronic medical issues that I did not know you. <laughs> I was like totally shocked when I read that chapter. I was like, what? Yeah, I know people like look at me and they get, and even back then, you know, people say, wow, you look great. I go, well, yeah, but I'm decaying on the inside. <laughs> Yeah. So like, I went from being very, very healthy or thinking I was very healthy to being very kind of sick overnight. And so what I found from my experience as a patient and as a chronic, you know, someone who was, who was dealing with illness and was not like this 24 hour thing that I had, you know, was several things. One, I didn't, I felt like being a doctor like I wasn't allowed to just be a patient. Like people would always make comments to me about, wow, it was really interesting being on the other side or is this going to make you a better doctor? I have such an aversion for neat, cozy narratives, mm. right? I just, not because I don't like something that's neat and cozy, but oftentimes they're false, you know, and it ignores the complexity of things. You literally look repulsed. I wish the listeners <laughs> can see you. You're like, oh, you had this like, anguish on your face when you said that Such well, because, life, because it's great characters like in again like you know as the writers like we love like some of our great characters are we embrace complexity with many things right like just for myself if i consider myself a character i go i think i'm a pretty empathic guy but man i go there were times i'm not and i'm embarrassed or i get angry or i get upset and sometimes it happens in the same shift, mm -hmm. you know, like we're all human. There's a tendency to try to stay away from those, stay away from that type of framing and understanding and interrogation, which I think is so great for what design is doing, what you do, which is like, we're trying to understand the experience in all its beauty and warts and all, you know? And so for me as a patient, I was like, yes, I go, I, I found myself, behaving differently towards patients as a physician, you know, yeah, I realized how tough it is to be a patient and how, how when you're most vulnerable, you have to navigate a healthcare system that is sometimes crueler than the very thing that's yeah. causing you to be sick. We work in a scary place. I forget that. Yeah. 
The emergency you know, room yeah. is probably the scariest spot in the hospital. It's chaotic, it is so scary. It noisy, is so scary. Stressful. It's, it's it is tense. so scary. And when you look at it through the eyes of a patient, and that one of the essays I write about as I was wheeled into an, the emergency department at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I suddenly looked at what I looked at what we do from a different lens, just even having all the hands, you know, I got putting leads and wires and monitors and on top on my chest and undressing me and, and me looking up at the monitor and like the ambulance ride in and hearing what was being said. And I was like, holy shit, this is pretty terrifying. And hearing the announcements overhead and people rushing in and people being really great. But the things that I remember about that experience was, you know, like there was a, a former medical student who actually was, a, I didn't realize was a resident there in the emergency medicine resident. <laughs> I wasn't in her part of the ER, but she came over and said, listen, I shouldn't be here. I, sh- I shouldn't know that you're here, but I saw your name and I just want to say hi. And it meant so much to me. And it was like the radiology techs who, you know, I was just shivering when I had to go for a, a CAT scan and just the jokes that they made and what they were and how they sort of talked me through it. Mm-hmm. And the nurses that were just so you know, extraordinary. And it was just kind of fun. And, and I, I have to tell you, I didn't write about this in the book, but actually hearing a conversation with the attending and the resident about like, what are the next steps need that need to be done? And and I knew, and I spoke the language. Like I, I was very aware of like the, the what everything meant. Mm. But even with that knowledge and being fluent in the language of medicine, it felt very intimidating being the subject of that discussion rather than engaging in it and being on the totally different side of it. Hmm. What are some practical ways that you do this when you work in the emergency room, when you provide these little morsels of humanity? One thing that I try to do every shift is to do one or two nice things for a patient. And that may usually involves getting them a drink of water, getting them a warm blanket. You know, we have these heaters in a lot of emergency rooms and it's so cold at night and just getting them a warm blanket. And even though I may not feel it in that time, like I want to do this because I'm often like so stressed because there's so many patients to see. I think of what your experience is that this has an impact that may be more impactful than the medicine I'm giving to a patient. I, I think you're absolutely right. I totally agree with you. And think about the things you just mentioned. There's such low-level asks, right? There's such low-level stuff. Low we level. focus medicine, motor medicine. It was so focused on like technology and the latest toy, without recognizing that like our ability to connect with patients operates basically on a level of story. Like we, mm. it is. It has been with us for thousands of years, and it's free. You know, it costs nothing except for our a little bit of time. You mentioned that it is an old school technology, but probably one of the most powerful tech, one of the technological most powerful tools things. that we have. And I think part of the challenge is, is the fact that we sort of conflate or confuse a patient history with a story, mm-hmm. right? So we can get all this, like this patient story isn't data mining. It isn't just gathering information, Right. It's actually trying to understand this individual who's before you now, because like every ER visit is a narrative event in their life. Mm. Right. They think about it like whatever they did out 
whatever our patients were doing, they came to the ER to wait, to be cared for most of the time by a stranger, right? And to confide important, fearful, anxiety-provoking, maybe sometimes embarrassing information to us. You know, this is an amazing, this is a narrative event, and it's important. And for us, it's just another patient. For them, like we have to, so the most important thing I try to do is recognize it. Whenever I feel or a resident presents a case to me that I'm not seeing primarily, and it's like, I don't think it's anything. I go, no, it's, there's something there. Because a person left their life to come to us, left their job, left caring for their kids, left whatever to come in. There's something there. There's a reason why. You got to get to why. And I find that being able to validate people's experiences is sometimes one of the most important things to do because there's an assumption that we have that I don't think we recognize, which is the idea about agency. Because like being able to tell your story is like as an act of agency, right? To be able to say, listen, this is what I'm going through. And many of the patients that I care for, like the idea about being in control, even for that moment to control the story that you're telling is a profound moment because what they're experiencing is often just a reaction to life, like life's many just cruel blows. And they're just reacting. They're trying to stay afloat. They're trying to make the next paycheck. They're trying to care for their kids. They're trying to like, is it going to be the electricity bill or is it going to be food? Is it going to be, I'm trying to get to see a doctor and no one will return my phone call for a week, you know? And just validating their experience and letting them talk for a little bit longer. That's all it is. And the little things that I do, which I think is really important, it sounds totally silly, is like I am the king of the pep talk. Mm-hmm. Not the bullshit pep talk, which is life gives you lemonade. Make lemons out of lemonade. You know, make lemonade out of lemons. No. It's like, so just even just the other day when someone came with an unrelated reason and I asked, I go, listen, do you smoke? He goes, yeah. You know, someone who's asthma, wheezing, he looks, he gives me a look, they're embarrassed. And he goes, but I quit drinking two months ago. Mm. And I go, that's huge. And I go, how hard was that? He goes, that was really hard. I go, that's incredible. You know, one thing at a time. I go, that is stinking huge. Because yeah, it was 30 years I was drinking. And I, I got to tell you. And I so then I, you know, stopped the inquiry into the other things and said, tell me, did you do it on your own? Did you get help? It was, nope, I did it on my own. And I'm like, how? I go, can I ask you a quest, stupid question? You don't have to tell me. And he goes, what? I go, why? Like, what was it this time? And he goes, family. Like, this guy goes, family. And he tells me a little about his family and what he was going through and what he was doing and not doing. And it was just a great moment of just sort of realizing that an incidental mentioning is so used for this person. Like it's such an incredible thing. And I sit there and go, I love to hear these stories. I love to hear the fact that you've done that. And almost to a T people go, thank you for saying that. You know, it's nothing major that we're doing. Like all we're doing is saying, God, we realize how hard it is to like, I tell people all the time, I counsel them all the time about like why you should stop using X. Mention, you could fill that yeah. in. I go, and I can't even stop drinking coffee. <laughs> it's hard. Like when you have a habit, it's hard. And try to contextualize it and humanize it and then say, and I can't even quit coffee. And you quit opioids or you quit the cocaine or you quit smoking, you quit drinking. I mean, whatever. Or you're out walking now. This is extraordinary. 
Mm. Like that's a huge achievement. And I try to make, even if it has unrelated, totally unrelated, because it's true. Yeah. I love that. I have a thousand more questions, but we are running out of time. And my final question to you is if there's one message that you want the audience to take away from the work you've done, what, what would that be? Huh. The book, I think being able to understand whether you're in a hospital, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a healthcare provider, whether you're a patient, whether you're a family member, we're all complicated humans. <laughs> and we're many things, you know, and we can't be summed up easily. And I feel that what we should strive to do, and it's something that I'm not always successful with, but I try, is to make that effort to understand someone else. Hmm. And what you need is curiosity. And I think an assumption that people mean well and are doing their best, you know, and getting through a simple day can be hard mm. and we won't and can't understand the experience of another unless we try. And that takes, it takes a little imagination as we spoke about. It takes, I think, a little bit, a little dose of courage and vulnerability on both our parts from the listener and the teller of a story and realizing these are moments of great vulnerability. And, you know, in medicine where we so try to manage risk mm -hmm. and yet in the arts and I think, and in life, like, Sometimes taking certain amount of risk is really what is necessary to understand someone else, to connect. And we should be willing to take those risks. Your book should be, I think, required reading for anyone who's a physician or nurse, but anyone in the healthcare space. But I also would say, even if you're not in healthcare, it is a great book. It's actually my uh, one of my favorite books that I've read this summer. So I think it has messages for both patients, clinicians. There's so much humanity in there. And, and I'm not just saying this because I know you, Jay, and I love you and you're a great guy. <laughs> like, you're a pretty damn good writer. Like, it is entertaining. It, it reads so fast. But I am just inspired by your words. So grateful that you made time for us on Design Lab. Well, thank you so much, Bon. I mean, I wrote the book for, for a lay audience. And so I, I hope it appeals to a wide audience. I try to do that. And again, like I think the book represents my effort to, to share my struggles with readers. And, and, I, and I feel if it's anything, it's honest. And I hope it engages. And I hope it connects with readers in, on, in many ways. And I'm so absolutely thrilled and honored to be on your podcast. And my respect for you is is endless and this has been just so much fun you can find jay baruch on twitter at j b a r u c h m d and reach out to me on twitter and instagram on twitter i can be found at b-o-n-k-u on instagram at d-r-b-o-n-k-u design lab was produced by rob puglisi our theme music was created by emmanuel houston and the cover design by eden Liu. see you next week